0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon.
2: great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip.
1: It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood Babylon.
0: Today, we will close the first half of the Hollywood Babylon Project by tackling, no pun intended, One of the most notorious stories in Kenneth Anger's Gossip Bible. One of the biggest female stars of the 1920s, Clara Bow did not invent the on-screen flapper. We've already talked about the Olive Thomas film The Flapper from 1920. And three years later came another landmark depiction, Flaming Youth, starring Colleen Moore. But Clara Bow remains better remembered than either Thomas or Moore, in part because more of her films survive, in part because one of those films gave her the incredibly sticky nickname of The It Girl, and in part because of stories about her personal life, like the ones circulated by Kenneth Anger. Here we present one last special guest, reading one last excerpt for now from Hollywood Babylon.
2: Clara Bow, known since 1926 as the hottest jazz baby in films, soon had her own headlines across the country's front pages. In 1930, Clara's trusted private secretary, Daisy DeVoe, sold all the ins and outs of the It Girl's nonstop love life during four frenzied years to the highest paying tabloid, New York's quasi-porno, Graphic. Clara fired Daisy after an attempt at blackmail. This was DeVoe's revenge. The graphic's avid readers soon learned just how devoted Miss DeVoe had been. She kept tabs on all the gentlemen callers to Clara's Chinese den. The four-year register of Clara's bow read like a roll call of He-Man talent. The list was just a little too long. Poor Gregarious Clara took on Trojans by the bunch She'd play party girl to the entire thundering herd, crack University of Southern California football team, during beery, brawling, gang-banging weekend parties, accommodating the fun-loving bruisers right down to the 11th man, hulking tackle Marion Morrison, later known as John Wayne. Clara took Daisy to the LA courts. After a battle royal with cat fur and lurid charges on both sides, Miss DeVoe was packed off to jail for pilfering large sums from the Bow bank account. Clara's victory was hollow. All those red-hot headlines hurt. She married Rex Bell in an effort to cool things out, but her career hit the skids, and she slid over the edge into the first of a series of nervous breakdowns. When her contract expired some months later, Offburnt Paramount did not renew. The case of the blowing valves had not helped. Her first talkie, the Wild Party, tried to milk those headlines. Her first scene called for her to dash into a girl's dorm with the line, hello everybody. The sound mixing engineer in the monitor room, unfamiliar with the Brooklynese boom of Clara's voice, didn't tune down the dials for Clara's greeting. She made her entrance, hollered, hello everybody, and blew every valve in the recording room. The eclipse of Clara Bow, who had been for an entire generation flaming youth personified, cinched Hollywood's reputation as the place where girls go wrong.
0: What was really going on in Clara's personal life? What really happened with Daisy DeVoe? And what was the truth behind Clara's transition to sound and the end of her career? Today, we will answer those questions and more. Join us, won't you, for the story of Clara Bow. From her very first substantial roles, Clara Bow played a wild child, her incorrigible taste for flirty thrills, embodied by her curves that would not quit, and the blood-red curls that spilled off of her head in a tumbling tangle. One of her first significant films was called Black Oxen, in which she played a virgin who can't wait to be spoiled. The peak of her career would come in 1927, when she was 21, and she would star as the ultimate creature of the 1920s in a film called It. In It, and elsewhere, Clara played characters who treated sex as a sport and a means to an end to be approached with a wink and a shrug as if totally upending the social order was not really a big deal. Audiences saw her as the avatar of playful promiscuity and consequence-free free living. But the real Clara had a host of emotional and mental problems stemming from a childhood that was about as sad as they come. She was born to Robert Bow, an itinerant singing waiter/busboy, and Sarah Bow, a girl Robert had known nearly all of her life, since before she fell from a tree at age 16 and hit her head, bringing on a lifelong struggle with epilepsy and mental illness. The Bows lived in a sordid tenement in Brooklyn and Sarah had given birth to two children who died almost immediately after escaping the womb, before Clara entered the world on June 29th, 1905. Robert had abandoned Sarah during the pregnancy, but once he learned that the third child had survived, he came back, at least for a little while. He would not be a major presence in Clara's life until she was a teenager, and when he was around... He often beat her. The little girl's one joy was going to the movies, but her mother discouraged her ambition to find fame on the screen, telling her that actresses were the same as whores. When Clara was 13, Sarah first threatened to kill her. That same year, Clara's parents took her out of school and told her to find work. She sold hot dogs on Coney Island and answered phones for a doctor. And then, in 1921, behind her disapproving mother's back, Clara entered a contest sponsored by Motion Picture magazine, which promised the winner a part in a real movie. Against all odds, Clara won the contest. The movie she was cast in was called Beyond the Rainbow, and it filmed in New York. The star of the movie was Billy Dove, who would, in six years, be Clara's rival for the most popular actress in Hollywood. But for now, Billy was the it girl, and Clara was an unformed hick from Brooklyn who no one on set saw much potential in. By the time director Christy Caban had finished editing the movie... Clara's scenes had all ended up on the cutting room floor. This professional humiliation wasn't enough for Clara's mom, who had taken to threatening her daughter with a butcher's knife to keep her from pursuing a career as an actress. When Robert Bowe found out that this was his estranged wife's way of raising their teenage daughter, he had Sarah committed to an asylum. About a year later, She died in the hospital. At the time, Clara was filming what would become her actual on-screen debut, called Down to the Sea in Ships. Much, much later, through the help of psychotherapy, Clara would uncover memories of being forced to hide in a pest-infested closet when her mother brought home tricks. She'd also remember that once her mother had been institutionalized, and Clara had moved in with her father in Bay Ridge and taken on the domestic duties of cooking and cleaning, he forced her to take on other wifely duties. Clara repressed memories of ongoing incestual rape for decades, and during that time, she bent over backwards to support her father— providing him with cash and housing, and funding his doomed attempts at businesses. When she was forced to acknowledge what her father had done to her when she was 16, 45-year-old Clara could not deal with it. So, she continued to welcome her father into her life, as though it had never happened, or as if she had never remembered it. and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks head to netsuite.com/remember 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 down to the sea in ships got clara noticed and she was offered a 3 month contract with preferred pictures run in Los Angeles by B.P. Schulberg. Schulberg would go on to run Paramount Pictures. His son, Bud Schulberg, would go on to write On the Waterfront. The younger Schulberg offered the following extremely uncharitable description of Clara in his memoir. Clara couldn't act, and she wasn't exactly a quick study. Of all the movie stars I've ever known, and I've known some famous bird brains... Clara Bow was an easy winner of the Dumbbell Award. Schilberg would belie his own declaration by going on to describe how masterfully Clara was able to cry on cue on screen. He felt affectionate towards Clara, who playfully flirted with him when he was a little boy and yet viciously condescended to her. His father, Clara's boss, had just about the same approach— except minus the affection. Going in, Clara was unaware of this, but Schulberg was beginning to be known as not the greatest man to work for. As Louise Brooks later put it, his organization was the cheapest, and his reputation for the sexual abuse of young actresses who worked for him was the worst in Hollywood. The phrase sexual abuse is not one you often hear or read when it comes to the silent film era. But Louise Brooks was ahead of her time in her ability to see the industry's corrupt business practices for what they were. Clara submitted to a relationship not with Schulberg, but with another executive at Paramount, Sam Jaffe. Jaffe would later claim that Clara wanted to marry him, but that he never would have, because, quote, She came from Brooklyn. She looked cheap. If this was a consensual relationship on Clara's part, which is unclear, then Clara was clearly seeking out a man who validated her already low opinion of herself. Clara managed to avoid Schulberg's casting couch, and to taunt him, she would tell him that she was sleeping with everyone but him and loving it. Clara had consensual affairs with several co-stars and at least one of her directors, Victor Fleming. But she wasn't actually sleeping with every prop and lighting guy she flaunted in Schulberg's face, just as his prepubescent son wasn't really her boyfriend. In joking about her sex life, she intended to hurt only Schulberg— But those jokes probably also helped to stoke the reputation she'd eventually be branded with as a slut who was so dumb, she didn't even understand that she was supposed to try to hide her promiscuity. The aforementioned Black Oxen was one of eight films Clara made in 1924, a year which was capped by the announcement that Clara had been chosen as one of Wampas's baby stars, which meant that film advertisers were selecting her as one of the year's most promising ingenues. Over the next two years, Bo would appear in 22 feature films. Schulberg, and the rest of Hollywood, milked Clara like she was a fashion fad even before she became a major star, which is why it's all the more remarkable that some of her films have really lasted. She was lucky to work frequently with great directors. She played a silly secretary for Ernst Lubitsch in Kiss Me Again. She appeared on the cover of Motion Picture Classic Magazine in June 1925 under the headline, The Kid Who Sassed Lubitsch. Inside the magazine, Clara was described as Young America Rampant, the symbol of flapperdom. This was exactly what Clara embodied in The Plastic Age, a film adaptation of a 1922 hit novel which cast Bo as the loose co-ed who almost leads a college quarterback astray before the big game. One of her two love interests in the film would be played by Luis Antonio D'Amaso de Alonso, a Mexican actor who had recently been given the whitewashed stage name of Gilbert Roland. Clara and Gilbert Roland fell in love while shooting the Plastic Age, and Clara would call theirs her first mature relationship. Robert Bow, Clara's dad, who was now living with her in Hollywood, forbid his daughter from marrying a Mexican. But Roland and Beau would continue to care about one another for her entire life. The 15th film Clara had appeared in in 1925, The Plastic Age became a huge hit, the biggest her studio had ever had. Its success inspired Paramount, the most major of major studios, to approach Schulberg with a buyout offer. In the deal, Schulberg would become a Paramount executive, and Clara would no longer be loaned out for the profits. Until a late career comeback, she would make the bulk of the rest of her films at Paramount. One of her first films under the new arrangement was Man Trap, in which she was directed by Victor Fleming. Fleming would later make a film called Bombshell, starring Jean Harlow as a movie star from the wrong side of the tracks who's always on the verge of some kind of sexual scandal, who lets her family and friends sponge off of her, and who ultimately longs to get away from it all, only to realize that making movies was the only right outlet for a girl with her talents. Fleming based this character on Clara. Mantrap offers a quintessential Clara Bow character, an irresistibly cute cute pie girl, who convinces one man after another that she is in love with them so that they'll take care of her. She flirts compulsively and is unable to stop herself from making eyes at one man when she's in the arms of another. As an example of Clara Bow the sex symbol, Mantrap suggests that her image was more carefree and innocent than that of the next bombshell to come along. Jean Harlow, whose persona had a touch of knowing cynicism. In Mantrap, even after she spends the whole movie manipulating men, you want to believe that she's just having harmless fun and doesn't really know any other way to live. It was the one two punch of Mantrap and the Plastic Age that catapulted Clara into major stardom. Clara showed some savvy in hiring powerful lawyer Neil McCarthy, who represented Howard Hughes, to help her renegotiate a new contract with Paramount. The studio ceded to all of her key demands. She would now be limited to a maximum of six films per year, for which she would be paid $5,000 a week. She would not be loaned out to other studios. And most significantly she would not be required to sign a morals clause. This was truly exceptional in post-Will Hayes Hollywood. Paramount instead found a way to offer a financial incentive for Clara's good behavior. If she did not breach the contract or commit the kind of offense that would usually breach a morals clause, at the end of every year... Paramount would deposit $25,000 into a trust, which Clara would be able to access at the end of the contract's five-year term. Again, as long as she did nothing to bring scrutiny into the moral rectitude of her personal life. Going into 1927, it looked like Clara Bow couldn't lose... Again, she appeared almost as if by accident in important films. She resented her role as the token girl in William Wellman's aviation adventure Wings, but Wings won the first Academy Award for Best Picture, making Clara, the only silent film star without a significant career in talkies, to star in a Best Picture winner. Incredibly, That same year, she fell into one of the most culturally significant hits of the decade. Eleanor Glynn, a British writer and self-styled tastemaker grand dame who had penned a scandalous best-selling novel called Three Weeks, followed it up with a novella called It. Eleanor Glynn's It could not be more different than Stephen King's It, which wouldn't come along for about 60 years. It was in essence sex appeal phrased in slang that was ultra appropriate for the decade of dance crazes and mixed messages about gender mores bp schulberg had no intention of adapting glenn's actual writing but sensing a priceless marketing hook he paid the author 50000 dollars for the rights to the concept of it and for her endorsement of clara beau as the It Girl. It confirmed Clara not just as a flapper icon, but as the greatest female American sex symbol of any variety of the late silent era. Though no one realized it while these movies were being made, films like It and Wings would be amongst the last silent features made before the anxiety of the transition to sound would come to be felt amongst executives, filmmakers, and particularly performers like Clara, who would be forced to completely reinvent their craft and rethink their approach to stardom. After it, Clara was given her first serious dramatic leading role in a film called Children of Divorce. Though she was technically engaged to Victor Fleming, and still surreptitiously seeing her former co-star Gilbert Rowland, Clara began a passionate affair with her Children of Divorce co-star Gary Cooper. This would be a pattern of Clara's. She would profess love to more than one man at a time and give each of them just a portion of herself. This would drive the men crazy, and caused them to obsess over trying to have the it-girl to themselves. And it also protected Clara from feeling that she was fully risking putting her emotions in one man's hands. Later in life, she would put all of her eggs in one man's basket, and then for decades, she'd agonize over not having kept anything for herself. Ultimately, Fleming would leave Clara because she wouldn't settle down with him. People close to Clara believed she really wanted to marry Roland and Gary Cooper, and in both cases, a parent prevented the union. With Roland, it was Clara's racist dad. With Cooper, it was Gary's mother, named, yes, Alice Cooper, who didn't approve of Hotsy Totsy Clara Bow's involvement with her son. Not able to admit she'd been disappointed in their lack of a future together, Clara reportedly spread word that Gary, tragically, had, quote, The biggest cock in Hollywood and no ass to push it with. In the midst of Clara's biggest year of stardom, 1927, She also took the social life swerve that would lead to one of the most luridly false stories in all of Hollywood Babylon, that Clara had sex with the entire USC football team, hosting quote-unquote gang-banging weekend parties, where the guests included future superstar John Wayne. Clara was not shy about her sex life, and she openly acknowledged juggling multiple boyfriends at a time, a fact which made her extremely unpopular in Hollywood, where it was a custom for movie stars to brag about their contented marriages and to keep any other sexual dallying under wraps. But Clara never named any of the members of the USC football team amongst her lovers. Here's what seems to have really happened. Clara was a football fan, and because there was no professional team in Los Angeles, she began attending USC games. She developed a crush on the team's star, Morley Drury, and after one game, she invited Drury and a friend to go for a drink with Clara and one of her girlfriends. Clara picked the college boys up in her cherry red Roadster, and took them to a speakeasy. The boys, who were only a couple of years younger than 22-year-old Clara, were nervous and starstruck. They didn't have a whole lot of sexual experience under their belts with any women, let alone super famous sex symbols. And they were on a strict training regimen. So while Clara and her friend ordered cocktails, the boys stuck to soft drinks. Unlike in the Plastic Age, there was no leading these college boys astray. They didn't make a move, and it seems like Clara, if she had any serious designs on Drury, realized after spending some time with him that he was basically a kid. In fact, he was living out a normal young adulthood, the kind Clara had been deprived of by the sordid circumstances of her upbringing— and her early entree into professional life. After one round of drinks, Clara dropped the boys back at their fraternity. Over the coming months, after Sunday games, Clara would host parties at her Beverly Hills house for the team. But these were apparently innocent, too. The boys were served food but no booze, and the extracurricular activities were limited to some dancing and a few games of touch football on the lawn. These parties were eventually called off by Robert Bowe, who was still living with Clara and who totally hypocritically decided to be the arbiter of propriety in her social life. After sending the team home one Sunday, he sneered at his movie star daughter, Why can't you be more like Lillian Gish?
1: get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com/audio. Visit IXL.com/audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Paramount refused to give Clara roles that would allow her to stretch herself as an actress. They were making too much money casting her over and over again as a silly, sex-crazed flapper. At an impasse over this refusal, Clara scheduled an appendectomy rather than shoot another film in early 1928. Her time in the hospital would lead to one of the most damaging scandals of her career, because there, she met a young medical intern named Earl Pearson. Pearson was just visiting from Texas, where he had a wife. Clara usually made it a rule to stay away from married men, but Pearson convinced her he was married in name only and that he and his wife were separated and all but divorced. When Pearson actually asked his wife Elizabeth for a divorce, she declared that she would sue him and name Clara as a correspondent. To prevent this from happening, Paramount issued a payout and they got the money by liquidating Clara's trust fund, their insurance policy, against her lack of a morals clause. $56,000 was sent to Elizabeth Pearson, and she kept Clara's name out of her divorce filing. In Paramount's mind, Clara had now essentially breached her contract with them, and they would be even less amenable going forward to her requests. Clara began confiding her troubles to her hairdresser. Daisy DeVoe had been doing Clara's hair since 1924, and she had become integral to the process of creating the Clara Bow as seen on screen. Clara's natural hair color was auburn, and Daisy had mastered a process to transform the actress into a flaming redhead. Clara trusted Daisy, and Daisy was able to see that Clara needed someone to manage her life. B.P. Schulberg suggested that Daisy let someone else dye Clara's hair while she went to work as the actress's personal secretary and all-around handler and fixer. Both women were amenable to this arrangement. Unbeknownst to Clara... Schulberg tried to manipulate the situation to his advantage by asking the newly dubbed secretary to spy on the actress for him. Daisy refused, thinking it was in her best interest to remain loyal to her best friend and employer. Daisy quickly managed to clean house, fixing up Clara's disastrous finances to remove dead weight from her payroll and arrange for the star to actually start saving. She also set up a checking account, which only Daisy and Clara would have access to. Daisy would regularly spend her own money to settle Clara's accounts, and then reimburse herself by writing a check to herself from Clara's account. This seems unnecessarily convoluted, but for almost two years... It all seemed to go smoothly, which was important because the dawning of talking pictures had thrown a grenade into Clara's professional life. Clara's first sound film was The Wild Party, directed by Dorothy Arzner, who worked with Clara previously on a film called Get Your Man. Clara had initially resisted the idea of a female director, but Arsner immediately picked up on Clara's natural talent and nurtured it. She was the right person to guide Clara through the extremely traumatic process of making her first talkie. Anger's story about the level of Clara's voice blowing the soundboard can't be verified. But Clara herself was extremely self-critical about her initial difficulty acting with her voice. When she first heard her first sound test for the wild party, she broke down sobbing.
2: How can I be a pictures with a voice like that?
0: She wailed. She developed a paralyzing fear of the microphone, and in the middle of takes, she often wasn't able to stop her eyes from drifting up at it hovering right above her forehead like an anvil. When she was able to focus and remember her lines, she would stammer them out or rush through them at an increasingly ear-splittingly high pitch. She broke down in tears of frustration and self-pity frequently. She was on the steepest of learning curves, and she had absolutely no confidence that she would succeed. Arsner did the best she could walking Clara through the process, but it was new to all of them, and the director found she got the best performance out of Clara when she kept the camera trained on her while other people were talking, to capture her reactions. Clara was always an extraordinarily physical actress who liked to move around in a scene so much that cameramen had a hard time keeping up with her. When wide shots were unusable because of her movement, a close-up would be cut in. Whether she realized it or not, in silent films, Clara's natural instinct to keep moving had helped fortify her stardom because it created the need for more gorgeous close-ups in which she shined like few others of her era or any era. But when she was required to talk on film, Her habitual movement made it difficult to figure out where to put microphones. Understanding the medium needed to meet Clara halfway, Arzner and her crew figured out how to rig a microphone to a fishing pole so that it could follow Clara around as needed. The Wild Party received mixed reviews, but it was a huge hit, suggesting that audiences still loved Clara even if she had been pushed past the edge of her comfort zone. And yet, after her next film, Dangerous Curves, Clara found herself stuck in a rut of unimpressive early talkies. By 1930, at just the age of 25, Clara's career seemed to be waning. At least on the set of one of these films, True to the Navy, she met cowboy actor Rex Bell. Rex, who had been born George Beldum, had been selected by Fox to front a new generation of westerns. Clara and Rex began a relationship, but as usual, she was still seeing other people, including Dr. Earl Pearson, who Clara went to visit in Dallas. She made the mistake of talking to reporters there and admitting that though Paramount had seized her withheld bonus money to pay off Elizabeth Pearson, Elizabeth Pearson, who was back together with Earl, was now claiming that she had never actually received the payoff, and evidence to emerge later made it seem like cheating Earl had diverted the funds before they could reach his wife. In short, Clara was still out over $50,000 and she had accidentally excavated the scandal that that money had supposedly buried. Around this time, Clara started talking about retiring as soon as her contract expired, and Paramount not so secretly hoped she would. She was simply causing them too much trouble. And the biggest scandal was yet to come. Clara's secretary, Daisy, and Clara's primary boyfriend, Rex, did not get along. Each saw the other as a rival for Clara's attention, and each sought to control Clara's bankroll, genuinely believing the star's money was safer in his or her hands than in Clara's. One night, Daisy overheard an argument between Clara and Rex The gist of which was, Rex wanted Clara to fire Daisy and install him in her place. Clara was refusing to do it, but told Rex that if he was insistent, he could fire Daisy himself. Daisy truly believed Rex was trying to swindle Clara. So she cleaned out a file cabinet in Clara's house, containing Clara's checkbook, financial documents and love letters from Rex, Pearson, and at least one other boyfriend. When Clara discovered this, Rex told her Daisy was a thief. Daisy planned to go to Clara's house the next day and explain, forcing the lady of the house to choose between Daisy and Rex once and for all. But Rex had been able to seize influence over Clara the night before. And by the time Daisy got to the house, the rest of Clara's staff had been informed that her secretary was not to be allowed in. Daisy went to the studio and, overcome with rage, said that she would return Clara's documents and letters for $125,000. Daisy thought better of it and went to Clara's house. She managed to get an audience with the star and this time offered to return what she had taken if Clara would let bygones be bygones and give Daisy her job back. Clara laughed in Daisy's face and got Paramount to get the district attorney to press charges. Neither the star nor the studio seemed to realize all that Daisy could reveal to the press and how her doing so could hurt Clara permanently. For their part, Paramount seemed content to hang Clara out to dry. They were looking at the imminent end of her contract and the knowledge that they had no plans to try to resign her. Thus she was no longer their problem to solve. Daisy was indicted on 37 counts of grand theft. A trial ensued, which sparked a media frenzy. Daisy used every opportunity on the stand to depict Clara as a classless, violent drunk who compulsively juggled men. Telegrams from Rex Pearson, and theatrical producer Henry Richman were submitted as evidence. And when Daisy accused Robert Bowe of wantonly spending Clara's money, she added that Clara insisted on keeping the canceled checks testifying to her father's expenditures in case she ever needed to blackmail him. By the time Clara took the stand as a witness to her employees' misdeeds, Daisy had painted such a sordid picture of her that the star was on the defensive. Where ice blonde Daisy had proceeded to air Clara's dirty laundry with poise, Clara, terrified of crowds, was nervous and awkward on the stand. She had a cold, which exacerbated her Brooklynese and her tendency to swallow the ends of words. And when it was time to recount her best friend's-slash-secretary's-blackmail threat, she collapsed into a mess of tears. Clara could have told the court true things to impugn Daisy's character, like the fact that Daisy's father was a convicted bootlegger, or that Daisy was secretly living with her boyfriend, James Wong Hao, a cinematographer who was born in China. But Clara was instead overcome by her genuine sadness at having been betrayed by one of the few people she had come to trust. Daisy was annoyed that Clara was upstaging her at her own trial. But pretty much everyone else harshly judged Clara's comportment, or lack thereof. In the end, Daisy was acquitted of 36 counts and imprisoned for one. By the time the trial was over, in early 1931, the 1920s that Clara had been the it girl of was long over replaced by the grim realities of the Depression. Clara's wasteful spending and hard partying revealed by Daisy during her trial did not match the grim national mood, and selected towns began to announce that they were banning Clara's movies. Anger claims Daisy sold true stories about Clara's overactive sex life to a New York tabloid called Graphic. I've looked into Graphic, and it was a pretty interesting publication— known for its pioneering of a type of surrealistic photo collage known as the Composograph. The other New York tabloids, such as the Daily News, regularly called out the graphic for going too far. And these competing publications did nickname it the Pornographic. The editors and writers at Graphic which at various points included Walter Winchell and Ed Sullivan, probably would have loved the chance to create a graph of Clara's supposed sins. However, I can't find any evidence that Daisy sold any of Clara's secrets to the graphic or that the graphic published any exposé on Clara at all. I acquired an out-of-print, 200-something-page memoir by one of graphic's editors, and there is no mention of Clara in this book, which you think there would be if this tabloid had outed her darkest sexual secrets. The author does detail the stories he published about other stars, including Lillian Gish, Peggy Hopkins Joyce, and Rudolph Valentino. What most other writing about Clara details is something that is not in Hollywood Babylon. Babylon unless Anger simply got the title of the publication and some of the goriest details wrong. And that is a series of articles published by an outfit called The Coast Reporter, claiming to expose Clara's sordid sex life. This series purported to be based on information provided by Daisy, but the stories were largely untrue and totally absurd. In addition to naming some of Clara's actual boyfriends, they suggested that she was known to travel down to Mexico to participate in orgies with card dealers and female prostitutes, and that at home, her lovers included her male and female servants, her cousin, and her great Dane. Nothing like this had ever been published before about a movie star, so readers had not developed the savvy to separate truth from obvious, libelous fiction. They assumed that if it was in a newspaper, it must be true news. The publisher of the Coast Reporter was a world-class idiot named Frederick Gurnau, and he revealed that the Claraboe Exposé was something between a publicity stunt and an extortion stunt when he sent copies of his free newspaper to Will Hayes and also sent an emissary to inform Clara that for $25,000, the series of stories would be killed. It was the former action that really got Gurnow into trouble. His stories of a movie star having all kinds of depraved sex qualified as pornography, and it was illegal to send pornography through the mail to anyone let alone Will Hayes, the former postmaster general who had specifically targeted the peddling of obscene material through the post. Gurnau was arrested and went to prison, but his paper stories had already done their damage. Clara was so traumatized that she failed to show up to rehearse for her new film, titled The Secret Call. She ended up checking into a sanitarium, where doctors diagnosed her with shattered nerves and declared it was imperative she rest and not work for a while. She was replaced in that film and Paramount, unhappy with the grosses on her recent films, seized on Clara's sickness as an opportunity to cancel her contract early. Given that due to her health, she would be unable to immediately meet her commitments. For a star they considered more valuable, a studio might have waited. But to scandal-plagued Clara, Paramount said goodbye and good riddance. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist Dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 25-year-old Clara bleached her red hair so that she wouldn't be recognized on the street in her early retirement. She bought a ranch on the California-Nevada border, and she and Rex lived there together, with Rex running the ranch while Clara rested. The couple were married on December 3, 1931. But Clara was soon rousted out of retirement, Rex was offered a 10-picture contract to make cowboy movies in Hollywood, and since Clara was going to accompany her husband there anyway, she started testing the waters for a comeback. Turned out, at studios other than Paramount, Clara Bow was still considered to be a hot commodity. She agreed to make 2 films for Fox in exchange for a salary of $250,000. This would be equivalent to about $46 million today, putting Clara in league or even above actresses currently making $20 million a movie. Her first effort for Fox would go down in history as Clara's craziest film, containing her best talking performance by far. Call Her Savage is the epic tale of Nasa, a young woman who, as a prologue shows us, comes from a long line of male and female promiscuity. In the covered wagon days, her grandfather's fooling around is blamed for a deadly battle, and he is warned that he's going to pass his bad moral genes down to his children. Then we see his adult daughter, dallying with a noble, super-handsome Native American man while her boring white-toast husband is away on business. Cut to 16-year-old Nasa, the wild child product of her mother's affair. Call Her Savage is inherently racist in that the stated text of the movie is that Nasa drinks, gambles, gets into fistfights and hair-pulling catfights, Sleeps with men, gets knocked up, and ultimately loses her baby in a horrible accident, all because she's a quote unquote half breed. The movie ultimately takes the point of view that it's the supposedly lowly, savage part of her blood that makes her bad, never mind the fact that her white grandfather was a rake and her Native American real father seems to have been gentle kind, and totally overwhelmed with guilt for having fathered a child out of wedlock with a woman he loved but society wouldn't let him be with. So Call Her Savage is definitely problematic, but it's also kind of an incredible film, a pre-code melodrama that leans into the things that would soon be banned from the screen, and in so doing is full of life in a way that early talkies often weren't. At the beginning of the film, Clara speaks too fast and too loud, and you wonder, is she sort of terrible? The only reason why it's a question instead of a declaration is that every time she's asked to do something physical, like wrestle with a big dog recalling the Great Dane the tabloid claimed was her lover— She's incredibly good. And every few minutes, she'll give a line reading that is not only appropriate, but almost shockingly authentically felt. Once NASA is pulled off the Texas ranch where she has grown up and sent to finishing school, Clara's performance becomes more finely calibrated. And by the end of the movie, she's given the kind of irresistible, tough, leading lady performance that would define Hollywood's greatest movies for much of the next two decades. Unfortunately, Clara wouldn't be part of that rise of the woman's film. Call Her Savage was a box office hit, but Fox took a full year to provide her with a follow-up project, and that film, Hoopla, was one of Clara's least favorites of her filmography. It was an anticlimax, but Clara was ready for her career to end. Clara did not seek more work in Hollywood. She retreated to the ranch and had two sons in quick succession. Meanwhile, Rex began pursuing a political career, which was hugely disappointing to Clara, as she had no desire to be a public wife and campaigning caused Rex to leave her home alone with the kids a lot. She felt abandoned and increasingly refused to leave the house. Her insomnia worsened, and she could only sleep if she took five pills in a night. She had other physical problems too, or so she thought, but doctors couldn't find anything wrong with her. One day, when her sons, Tony and George, were eight and five, they brought their mom breakfast in bed and found her bed surrounded by empty pill bottles. Mom wouldn't wake up. Clara's stomach was pumped and she survived, and a few years later, she finally sought intense psychiatric treatment. Clara was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and through deep psychotherapy, she was able to uncover memories from her childhood, such as the filthy pantry her mother would lock her in so she could turn tricks in their tenement, such as her father's sexual abuse of her, all of which helped to explain how and why Clara's personality had broken. But therapy could only take Clara so far, and at some point, she began to resist treatment. Rex decided it wasn't safe to let Clara live at home with her now-teenage sons, so the couple secretly separated, and Clara spent the last 15 years of her life living in Los Angeles in almost total seclusion, leaving the house only for doctor's appointments and, when Rex died, his memorial service. Clara Beau died... In 1965, at the age of 60. In her last years, Clara was fascinated by Marilyn Monroe. When the younger actress died of an apparent suicide, Clara commented that she could relate to Marilyn's struggles. She said, A sex symbol is always a heavy load to carry, especially when one is very hurt tired, and bewildered. Both Clara Bow and Marilyn Monroe were sex symbols who suffered horrible abuse in their childhoods. In both, the camera was able to capture something unique and gorgeous in a hurt, sick person. And in exchange, the hurt, sick person was given fame and wealth. The kinds of spoils people dream of and assume will solve their problems. But as much as status and toys can be enjoyable to a point, they don't fix the original wound, which, for both Clara and Marilyn, came to overwhelm them. This is why it's so dangerous and destructive for a book like Hollywood Babylon to incorrectly label Clara Bow a gang-banging party girl whose career went down in flames due to an uncontrollable sex life and an even more out-of-control voice. Not only were such things not true, but the real trauma and drama of Clara's life was both more damaging and narratively fascinating than anything that could be made up. This concludes the first half of our season on Hollywood Babylon. We'll be back in a few weeks with a mini-season related to my upcoming book, and then we'll pick up with more Hollywood Babylon stories later in the fall. Join us in October, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests, Matt Bomer, who read From Hollywood Babylon, and Natasha Leone, who played Clara Bow. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There, you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction Sex Lies and stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next season with more tales from the secrets and forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.
2: Got the whole thing down That's the the missing persons that You
1: know your daughter can't be found
2: You know your daughter can't be found